the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation tonight. Dr. Jerry Buckner with us this evening in studio, entertaining your comments and questions tonight on the topic of the Trinity. His new book, Biblical Propositions Supporting the Trinity, details, by the way, on his website at contendingfaith.org. You can also order a copy of the book online through Amazon.com. Let's head over to Palo Alto and say good evening to Lee. Hi, Lee. Come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Jerry Buckner. Thank you. I know that the triune Godhead is spirit. Um, And in reading the Old Testament, the Father just seems very much like a person to me. I mean, I could um, understand his character and how he thinks. And Jesus, of course, it's it's easy to see how he thinks because we have his words. But the Holy Spirit, even though Jesus said, um, you know, we pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus said that when he leaves and the Holy Spirit comes, we'll be able to do even much more than, than he did. Um, it, it seems like the, the Holy Spirit becomes a role or a function rather than a person. And I know we can grieve him and quench him, but it seems like, you know, we get boldness from the Holy Spirit. He opens our eyes. But, you know, people, once I asked about the Holy Spirit and someone said, oh, do you speak in tongues? And I do not. So, you know, I mean, it, it just seems like the Holy Spirit is more of a function than a person. All right, good observation. The Old Testament, Dr. Buckner proclaiming the Father certainly more openly, the Son more obscurely. Of course, in the New Testament then, manifestation of the Son, suggesting the deity and the presence of the Spirit that now dwells amongst us. So we see kind of three distinct functionaries in terms of the Father in the Old Testament, very strong, the Son in the New, and then the Holy Spirit for the current, you know, for the generation subsequent. Right, exactly. And uh, let me just say this, uh, Lee, this is a good uh, point you're raising. You have to look at the, again, the Trinity being, um, as I said in the beginning, that you're dealing with one God who's called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons. Uh, three distinct persons. Let me kind of give you an, uh, an example of this in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is, is, is a person and he is also God. I'm just going to do this by memory. Uh, John 4 and 24, and you might want to write this down. It says, God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it makes it clear there that, that the Holy Spirit is, is God. Also, you want to look at... Uh, Acts 5 and verses 3 and 4. You remember Ananias and Sapphira when they lied against the Holy Spirit. Now, you cannot lie against a function. You cannot lie against a win or force. You can only lie against a person or to a person. So we see that Acts 5, 3, and 4, we see that the Holy Spirit was lied to. And then Peter ends up saying, you didn't lie unto man, but you lied unto God. So it's very clear there that the Holy Spirit is not only God, but he's also a person because they lie to a person and he ends up saying, you lied unto God. And then you may want to also look at, 
John chapters 14 through uh, 16, because you have a dialogue between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're constantly saying, I and we, I send another comforter, and he, and and they constantly uh, interchange he and, and uh, I, and it's constantly letting you know that all three persons are not, ju- they're not a function, they are distinct persons, and they make it very clear in the scripture who they are. So I think you got to look at the totality of Scripture, and even though uh, a lot of things in the Old Testament is not as clear, but there are things in the Old Testament that are clear as well. Uh, but in the New Testament, it starts to unfold, and you start to get a deeper depthness of what the, the Holy Spirit well, is. Let's elaborate on this point for a moment, okay. too, for the benefit of both Lee and, and other listeners. That sometimes we, we kind of get our mind wrapped around this, and we're saying, well, wait a minute now. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, distinct persons and yet identical in nature. Okay, my mind doesn't understand this. And sometimes with that, we're completely dismissive because I don't get it. It can't possibly be so. And yet, if we talk through many concepts of the pillar of faith, let's talk about the virgin birth. Does anybody know of anyone before or since that was born of a virgin? Absolutely not. Yet we embrace it and accept it. We do that by faith, trying to understand God's very plan of salvation, that this holy, righteous, perfect God would sacrifice his only son on a cross to pay the price that I should have paid for my sins simply because he wants to walk in fellowship with me. There's a level of which I find that a little hard to understand, too. Absolutely. And what we were, I was sharing with you during the commercial is that, and you, you like these words, I share it with you, is that we, uh, there are a lot of things that we cannot comprehend. But there are a lot of things in the scriptures that we can apprehend. Take them in. And we can take them, take them in. And so the scriptures is clear with us when it comes to God. And like you mentioned before, a good point, salvation, is that it tells us in Hebrews 11 and 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. We walk by faith and not by sight. Paul makes it clear in, the, in the, uh, his epistle. So when it comes to basic things in life, not just God, but it, it, when it comes to just everyday matters, you get on a plane, you don't know if it's going to come down. You have faith. When you go to a restaurant, you don't know if somebody can be a terrorist back there cooking your food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, they could put some poison in your food. Every day you get in the car, you don't know if it's going to explode on you or a bomb has been put in there. Every day we walk by faith. And so God says, be that way towards me as well, because that's what I'm all about. And the mystery of the Godhead at a level, we're, we're talking about very God himself, it would seem to be a little bit far-fetched at a level for man to expect to fully comprehend the totality of God and his character. I mean, we're, we're living on an entirely different plane. Now, we see through that glass darkly. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as it is, as he is on the other side. So it makes perfect sense right now. It makes there are certain levels sense. that, you know, we're, how dare we suggest that we ought to totally, and I'm not referring necessarily to the caller, but just the overall idea that we have to totally comprehend every single aspect of the Godhead before we're willing to accept it, when I think it's perfectly natural to understand that we serve a great mighty and, and a God that at certain levels is, is beyond man's capability. It's so true. It's so true. And, and several things I want to say about that, because you're making a good point. <clears throat> it tells us in the Isaiah chapter 55, God says, as the heavens 
or higher than the earth, so are my thoughts About higher. Thoughts. <laughs> so don't try to get your thoughts on That's the level right. of God because we're finite and he's infinite. And then the other thing is, it's interesting, Craig, that when you look at life in general, you look in the at the creation, there are so many things in creation that reflects God. You know, we see three aspects of an egg, right? And then we see three aspects of water. And then even human beings. God has created us with a body, soul, and spirit. And all of this is a reflection of our creation Mm -hmm. uh, from the creator. God is saying, I put my stamp not only in the universe, but I put my stamp even in man to remind him that there was three distinct persons that created you. Because we know from uh, Genesis 1 and 1 that God the Father created. We know from John uh, chapter 1 as well as Colossians chapter 1 we know that and also uh, Hebrews chapter 1 that literally Jesus created. And then in the Old Testament it talks about the Holy Spirit creating. So all three, when it says that the Holy Spirit is God, he's part of that creative act of mankind. So we're all a reflection of God whether we uh, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. We'll take a time conversation on the Trinity with Dr. Jerry Buckner continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation. Dr. Jerry Buckner with us tonight in studio. He, of course, hosts Contending for the Faith heard Saturday evenings at 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. He is an adjunct professor at Golden Gate Theological Seminary and author of a new book, Biblical Propositions Supporting the Trinity. Show it up here for the camera. And the book available, by the way, at Amazon.com. You can also order it through Dr. Buckner's website, contendingfaith.org, or give him a call at area code 415-721-1778. That's 415-721-1778. We're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity that, as we point out, Dr. Buckner, while not specifically taught in plain language in the New Testament, is yet revealed throughout the entirety of not just the New Testament, but but even prophetically spoken to throughout the Old Testament. With that thought in mind, let's talk about some of the, the notions here. We see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all three called God together. Give me a little bit of a deeper understanding in terms of the functionality of each of those distinctive persons within the Godhead. That's a good question. Well, the the Father is the one who always seems to be, because I'm going to back up on that. There is always, God has always worked on a hierarchical level throughout history, not only with uh, himself, but also with the family uh, and with uh, the world in general. So God has established a hierarchical structure by which which the father is the one who literally is the executive head. And then what he does is that he delegates to the son and then the son delegates to the Holy Spirit. And yet it's not one or the other that's inferior to the other. It's just that that's the way they work functionally. They work uh, just like a family, uh, a husband and wife is working uh, for uh, a deep end, but yet they are equal, but they have different functions. God has established within the home, the, the head of the woman is the man and the head of the man is Christ. So God has always worked in a hierarchy 
hierarchical structure. And so the father is the one who is literally the executive head. And then Jesus comes under the head. And then the Holy Spirit comes under that as a, a structural, functional order. And God has established that so that we would have order in families, in the church, and in society. And so it's a beautiful uh, setup. And yet we see, even though the Father is the head over Christ, and Christ is the head over mankind, and yet the Father is the head of Christ, the Father and Son are still equal. And even just like in a marriage, the husband is the head of the wife, but yet they're equal ontologically. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal ontologically, but functionally, they are play different roles. And so let me give you another example of this. When Jesus said in John 14 and uh, 28, I believe, he says, the Father is greater than I. He was basically not saying that the Father is greater than he nature-wise, but position-wise. So the Greek word for greater means mazon, and it's talking about position. The Father is in heaven as the executive head. Came, He allowed the Son to come down and die for us, and he took on a lower position, but nature-wise, he's equal. Which you, where you see him then essentially deferring to the Father. Deferring, uh, exactly. Not my will, but thine be done. Thy will be done and teaching us to depend upon the father because he did it himself if you have in the in the world at one time a perfect man who is god coming to the earth totally depending upon the father not doing anything upon himself that's a real lesson to us who are imperfect how much we should obey and we see a very high degree of, of functionality between the three uh, aspects of the Godhead, a, a tremendous sense of interdependence. I'll give you an example here. In Luke one thirty-five, speaking of the angel coming to Mary concerning the virgin birth of Christ, and he says, The angel answered to her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So we see all three persons functioning within the matter of coming to Mary to give her the message of how this is all going to take place. Absolutely, and it's good that you mentioned that because within the Trinity, you see all of them working together. Mm-hmm. So that's a good uh, scripture there, uh, Luke 1 and 35. So we see the Trinity together in, at the birth of Christ. We see the Trinity together at the baptism of Jesus Christ in, in uh, Matthew 3. Jesus goes comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and, a spirit, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son. And you even see the Trinity involved with the resurrection because not only did Jesus raise himself, John 2, 19 through 21, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But we also learned that in Galatians 1 and 1, the Father raised him up from the dead. And then we learn in Romans 8 and 11 that it says, but if the spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead will also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit. Fascinating to see the connectivity of those references in every one of the cases you yeah. Yes. about the baptism, uh, Luke 32, John 1.32. Here's Stephen. Now here's, here's a wonderful one, Acts 7.55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Absolutely. And what I generally do, Craig, that's a good point. What I generally do when I'm teaching this subject, I always say that Trinitarian 
uh, doctrine, teaching, it always comes like behind a person, first of all, demonstrating the evidence for the Father being and Son and Holy Spirit being one God. I said, don't get into Trinitarian texts first. But you first of all establish that there is one God and that that one God is called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Once you demonstrate that, then you can go to Trinitarian texts. And, and because a lot of Christians have not been taught effectively this subject matter, they'll jump to Trinitarian texts first without demonstrating the validity and historicity and authenticity of the fact that the, there is one God ontologically and that one God is called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we must demonstrate that first. That's why I use in the book the if proposition. If it can be shown that there is one God, if it can be shown that the one God is called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if it can be shown that they all work together as one. So we deal with the if propositions, and then we go, after we demonstrate that, we go to the other. And this falls right in place with 1 Peter 3 and 15. God is commanding us, that's an apologetic scripture, to be ready. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready all Always to give an answer to every man that asks of you, a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. And you know, that comes back full circle as our time in the hour winds down, Dr. Bucker. Too fast. <laughs> we we oftentimes, I think as believers, struggle with the idea that we're not seeing a strong enough impact of the church on the culture around us today. We wonder why there are so many nominal Christians instead of phenomenal Christians. <laughs> we we like wonder that. why there's a sense of lukewarmness that seems to permeate a lot of Christendom today. And I think it goes to the heart of this very question that we, we know not in whom we have believed. There is a sense of, of, of cultural Christianity. Well, we were kind of always around this. So we accept it. We don't really understand it. We can't explain it. We certainly are incapable of sharing it with others. And so it's difficult for us to be engaged in that process of making disciples because we don't even understand what it means to be a disciple ourselves. And a lot of that goes back to this core central issue of biblical illiteracy. As you've explained the Trinity today, we work through just a very basic set of passages and working through those four if propositions. And you very easily and systematically can very clearly see the revelation and substantiation of the Trinity throughout both the Old and the New Testament, if we'd only take the time to do the reading. Oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you, you mentioned the word disciple, and I just get uh, goosebumps when I hear you say that. I've been doing a teaching in our church on discipleship and the importance of that. Do you not know that in the Bible, the word disciple is used 270 times, and the word Christian is used three times. Mm -hmm. Now, that's serious, because God is really trying to get a point across to us that this is what I want you to grow into, because that involves lordship, it involves rulership, it involves, uh, you know, stewardship, it involves all of that, and people are not willing to go that far. They don't understand it, therefore they can't share it, and they don't understand it because they haven't understood it. Because they haven't read it. That's right. Absolutely. Bottom line. Absolutely. We want to invite you to tune in Saturday evenings at 7 p.m. for Contending for the Faith, Dr. Jerry Buckner's program. You can get more information, by the way, on the church and the ministry, contendingfaith.org. That's contendingfaith.org. The new book, Biblical Propositions Supporting the Trinity, available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Dr. Buckner's website. You can also call for more information, area code 415 721 
1978. We invite you to tune in Saturday evenings for Contending for the Faith. Dr. Buckner, as always, great to see you again. Good to see you on the radio, as they say. Amen. We look forward to another visit real soon. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Brother Dr. Jerry Buckner. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Warnings by the State Department that travelers should be concerned about potential travel to certain key hotspots around the globe during the summer vacation season. Of course, all of this on the heels of what seems to be deafening silence out of Washington, D.C. concerning the Egypt airplane that crashed and still questions about why. I think many probably concluded correctly from the very get-go that it seems to walk like a duck and smell like a duck and quack like a duck, so it probably is terrorism. We just don't know. The irony, of course, is if we look at these acts, whether it be the Egypt air crash or what transpired in places like Brussels or Paris before that, it seems to run contrarian to what we've been told. In fact, we've heard repeatedly over the last several years... ISIS is gaining strength, aren't they? Well, I don't think they're gaining strength. What is true is, is that from the start, our goal has been first to contain, and we have contained them. They have not gained ground in Iraq, and in Syria, it, they'll come in, they'll leave, uh, but you don't see the systematic march by ISIL uh, across the terrain. There should be no doubt. Today, America is stronger, and Al-Qaeda is on the path to defeat. We've decimated al-Qaeda's leadership. Al-Qaeda is on the path to defeat, and bin Laden is dead. We've decimated al-Qaeda central. We have eliminated Osama bin Laden. Al-Qaeda is much weaker than it was when I came into office. Osama bin Laden is dead, and General Motors is alive. The war in Afghanistan is coming to a close. Al-Qaeda is on the path to defeat. Osama bin Laden is dead. Today, the core of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan is on the path to defeat. Their remaining operatives spend more time thinking about their own safety than plotting against us. Of course, the irony with all of that is that terrorism is actually on the increase. In fact, we've seen in the last couple of years 10 times more killed in attacks today than 15 years ago. Joining me now is celebrated author Sebastian Gorka. He is considered one of the world's most sought-after authorities on the issue of counterterrorism and global terrorism. And he's author of a new book called Defeating Jihad, The Winnable War. And Sebastian, great to have you on the program. Wonderful to be on your show. I guess it begs the big key question. Contrary to what we've been told by the president, by the State Department, uh, it appears as if terrorism, as I suggest from the pure numbers, seems to be on the rise. And if that be the case, and as your book suggests, this is a winnable war, then I guess the question begged by all of us is, why aren't we winning it? Because we have the wrong strategy and we have a commander-in-chief that doesn't want to win the war. It's very, very simple. All right. When you say wrong strategy, let's drill down into some specifics. Uh, We frequently hear the president talk about fighting terrorism or fighting extremism. And yet I've always thought it quite odd if we think back to, let's take World War II, for example. Um, During World War II, we we didn't hear President Roosevelt or Churchill say that we were fighting uh, Blitzkrieg. They said we were fighting Nazism or to suggest that we were fighting kamikaze and not the Japanese. Is that part of the problem here that we've got kind of got caught up in this in this ideology from our standpoint that we're afraid to call it what it is? 
Oh, that's a huge part of it. We, we deny the relevance of ideology completely. We, we have an administration that wishes to, wishes to say again and again and again that uh, this enemy has nothing to do with religion. It's all about unemployed people who are uneducated. And you're not even allowed to call them by the name they call themselves. They say they are jihadis. They are holy warriors for Allah. And the White House banned six years ago any mention of religion in the training of our FBI or our military and even said that words like jihad are forbidden from training manuals. So, yes, we, we, we have this insane political correctness that makes it impossible to talk honestly about the, the enemy, who they want, or what, who they are and what they want. Beyond it hampering our ability to talk in open, honest dialogue, in the very least amongst ourselves, it, it seems, as you suggest in the book, Sebastian, that it's going uh, even deeper than that, that it's actually inhibiting our ability to attack the enemy and, and once and for all defeat it. And, and I find it ironic during the, the last round of debates between um, Hillary Clinton and um, Bernie Sanders, the question was raised concerning terrorism, and Bernie Sanders, uh, with a straight face, said that, quote, and I'm quoting here, climate change directly relates to the growth of terrorism. It, it seems as if this is more than just an inability to call terrorism or those responsible for it what it is. It also seems as if we think that if we if we pretend as if the boogeyman isn't behind the closet or if there's no skeletons underneath the bed, that they somehow go away by just changing language. No, and, and it's not just crazy communists from Vermont. I mean, this is something that the, the Obama administration has made, uh, you know, gospel inside the Pentagon. The, even, you know, I've met colonels who say that the primary threat to America is global warming or climate change. So the, the administration has created a fantasy land that has no reality to what's going on in the Middle East. People being crucified as we speak uh, on this telephone line. People are being sold as sex slaves, and they want to talk about polar bears and uh, icebergs melting. This is, this is the absurd reality America lives in today. But why such a disconnect from reality? Because, you know, there are any number of sources available out there, even the New York Times, certainly an old bastion of conservatism, um, has published reports and stories that demonstrate the precise number of Americans that have died, for example, since 9-11. We know that on 9-11, 2,996 people perished, many of them United States citizens or permanent residents. We also know that uh, since 9-11, over 7,000 Americans have died on battlefields in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And another, another even more startling number is that nearly a million, 900,000, have been injured in this war that we've waged, quote-unquote, against terrorism over the last 15 years. And yet, it's a war that, as you suggest, we're clearly not winning and a lot of it has to do with the strategy or, better put perhaps, Sebastian, the lack of strategy here? Well, yes, it's a lack of strategy, but it's many things. It's, it's deep philosoph philosophical things. If, if you're a politician who doesn't have a serious understanding of religion, you look at religion in a, in a Freudian interpretation, or you, you think of it as, as just some kind of social club that you go to on Sundays, uh, you're not going to understand somebody who's motivated by their faith to kill us. So number one, there's a kind of worldview issue. Second, there's an ideological um, problem. Look at who... Uh, 
Obama was shaped by. Look at who Secretary Clinton was shaped by. Look at who you know, all of her, his key advisors were shaped by. These are people who primarily see America as the problem. These are people who were taught by Alinsky or looked up to Saul Alinsky, people who venerate individuals like Noam Chomsky. These are American self-haters. They always see America as the problem, and as a result, they relate much more closely to our enemies than they do to our allies or to the values of the founding. And it's amazing. If we could turn back the clock 70-something years, the very kind of statements that many of these individuals have made would be considered outright acts of, what should we call it, but, but perhaps directly what it is, and that is acts of treason. Well, yes. I mean, if you think about, could you imagine any other, other, other administration in history giving more than $100 billion to a government that has killed American Marines and uh, has been a sponsor of government uh, terrorism for more than 30 years? That's Iran. That's the, that's the Obama-Iran deal. We are giving $150 billion to one of the biggest sponsors of Islamic terrorism. This, this would be unconscionable in any prior age and would would really have led to court martials or to impeachments. If you've just joined our conversation, best-selling author Sebastian Gorka with us today. He is considered one of the nation's most foremost authorities on terrorism and counterterrorism. He has a new book out recently published by Regnery Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. It's called Defeating Jihad, The Winnable War. We'll talk more about some of the tactics necessary to win this war as our conversation with Sebastian Gorka continues right here on Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In Iraq, almost 100,000 troops have come home and civilians are poised to keep the peace. In Afghanistan, integrated military and civilian surges have helped set the stage for our diplomatic surge to support Afghan-led reconciliation that can end the conflict and put al-Qaeda on the run. We had a lot of conversation about ISIS in the last week. Let's not forget al-Qaeda. They still have the most sophisticated bomb makers, ambitious plotters, and active affiliates in places like Yemen and North Africa. Of course, just four years prior to that statement, they were all on the run. We're back to our conversation with Sebastian Borka. His new book is called Defeating Jihad, the Winnable War. And you made mention about some of the identifiable nations that have been involved in supporting terrorism. And I have to wonder, as I did even in the days after 9-11, when it came to light that 15 of the 19 9-11 terrorists were all Saudi Arabian citizens, Osama bin Laden himself from Saudi Arabia. Now we find out that Financial support of the terrorists coming from no less than the Saudi royal family was ongoing, and yet it seems as if we're not willing to identify this country as an organized enemy of ours simply, Sebastian, for what? Because we got a great oil deal from them? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than saying Saudi Arabia is behind terrorism. The fact is there's no such thing as a unitary Saudi state. We have individual actors amongst the the royal families, the princes, the government officials that have been acting, as we know, since the siege of Mecca in 1979 that I detail in, in the book Defeating Jihad, that, that have been sponsors of, of ideolo- ideological export of things like jihad 
jihadism. So, you know, you know they, they, they're kind of in a half-pregnant situation. Half the time they're on our side, half of them aren't on our side. And of course, don't forget, this is a very important uh, oil nation as well. So all of these things uh, together uh, add up to make a very uh, complex relationship to America and to the international jihadi movement. We've seen multiple attacks on U.S. soil since 9-11. I'm thinking specifically of things like Fort Hood, the Boston Marathon, Chattanooga, most recently San Bernardino. When you heard the news concerning the downing of Egypt Air Flight, what was your initial reaction? Well, as soon as I got the initial information about where this plane had been, the fact that the flight originated in Paris and was going to Egypt, both very uh, symbolically important to the jihadis, and then we had the strange information about it losing contact with the air traffic controllers, going into some kind of very violent uh, spin. Um, these things point towards some kind of man-made event, some kind of terrorist uh, conspiracy. But of course, these things take uh, months sometimes even years to adequately investigate. But all the things we know right now point to the very great likelihood of it being some kind of terrorist attack. Based on your experience and understanding of the way terrorist cells operate, the way they organize, the way they select and then attack targets, um, as we're here in a critical, perhaps one of the most critical election years ever in the history, certainly of, of America in the last five or six generations, if you could sit down with whoever the presumptive president will be come January of 2017 and could have a discussion pertaining Sebastian specifically toward changing the tide, meaning moving from a war that we have been consistently losing since 9-11 to a war that we can win, what would be your advice? What would be your counsel in terms of what we need to change, both in terms of action, mentality, and attitude in order to get this thing on the right track and actually be able to go in and, as we've heard stories from Washington, actually defeat these terrorists? Well, it's really, this is the the final chapter of the book, and it's based upon three things. So the new strategy for the next commander-in-chief is, number one, get politics and especially political correctness uh, out of the equation. So no more censorship of who the enemy is and what they believe. So just be truthful and honest about the enemy and how to defeat them. Uh, Secondly, we have to realize that whilst they're crucifying Christians and and, and beheading Yazidis, this is, in fact, also, a a group that mostly targets Muslims. So the primary victims of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda are those Muslims who disagree with them. So we have to empower these individuals to take the fight to the jihadis. This is especially uh, Jordan and Egypt, uh, nations that uh, the Obama administration has really turned their backs towards. And then lastly, uh, uh, something, uh, a lesson from the Cold War is we have to, if we really want to win, if we don't want to do whack-a-mole for another 15 years, is we have to uh, delegitimize the ideology of the enemy. The same way we delegitimize communism, we have to delegitimize the ideology of global jihad. And that's going to take a strategic counter-propaganda push that has to be driven out of the White House. So 
We need leadership, we need honesty, we need truth, and we have to empower our allies in the region. What about this notion, though, and we often hear this argument uh, put out by the ideologues out there that say, well, but here's the challenge, and that is that not all Muslims are engaged in terrorism, not all Muslims wish to see the defeat of Western ideals or Western nations like the United States or Paris, for that matter, France, etc. And so how do we go about opening up the dialogue where we can eliminate, as you say, the political speak and have honest, open dialogue about not only what's really going on here, but who's behind it, while at the same token, not, quote unquote, offending the, the average Muslim out there. And we have to stop worrying about that. When, when Muslim fighter pilots from Jordan are being burnt alive in cages and then videoed by ISIS, uh, we, we just stop caring about people's feelings. People are being massacred right now. Let's start winning this war and, and concentrating on what's important. We're not going to offend people who know that their whole way of life, their families are at danger because they disagree with ISIS. So again, I, I think we, we need a dose of reality and we have to realize that the front line of this war shouldn't be white-skinned or you know, black-skinned Americans. It should be the local Sunnis who are most at threat and uh, we should talk to them honestly and you know what having worked with many of them for the last 10 years uh, they will appreciate our honesty going back did we make mistakes in terms of engaging secular governments i think of what's happened in iraq most notably and what seems to be just the the unraveling of that nation since the deposing uh, dethroning of saddam hussein not to suggest that he was a good guy or that uh, you know he, he ought to be attending state dinners at the white house but i have to wonder if you if you displace a secular government and it gets replaced by a a a theologically driven government, such as what we saw in the 70s in, um, uh, in Iran, if part of this sort of mix that we've created here isn't, isn't because of our own doing. Well, look, Saddam Hussein is the only man in history after Adolf Hitler to use chemical weapons against his own citizens. So nobody should cry over the loss of Saddam Hussein. Agreed. Uh, justifying it in terms of linking it to 9-11, that was problematic. Um, but there's a bigger issue. The, the, the bigger issue is you can depose somebody if you want, if you can argue that it's in the U.S. national interest. But then to have U.S. JAG officers write the new constitution of both Iraq and Afghanistan with statements inside the, the constitutions that say the Sharia law uh, supersedes anything in this constitution. That's madness. We, we, ne we never said Bushido supersedes what the Japanese constitution says after we took over Japan, nor did we say anything about Nazi theology or ideology superseding anything to do with the, this constitution of West Germany while we were occupying it. But that's what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's inexcusable. Does it also demonstrate a, a, a fundamental flaw in leadership, specifically out of Washington, D.C., and military leadership to a degree as well? Does it demonstrate, in your opinion, Sebastian, a fundamental misunderstanding of exactly the teachings of Islam or Sharia law? 
Absolutely. I mean, arrogance, ignorance uh, combined in a deadly cocktail. I completely concur. How on earth could anybody, after witnessing the last 14 years of history, 1400 years of history, think that theocracy in the Islamic context was a good idea? I mean, that's what Iran is. That's why Ataturk was so important in Turkey, because he broke the theocratic traditions. And then what do we do? We reimpose theocracy on the nations that we say we liberated after 9-11. It, it, it couldn't have been a worse decision, especially after Mr. Bremer fired all the Iraqi military. So those things together created a witch's brew, some of which are the consequences we are having to deal with today. Final question for you, Sebastian. Is part of that witch's brew to our inability to really understand which allies we ought to be aligning ourselves and which ones we had better avoid. And I ask that question because what it appears to be a degree of bumbling going on in relationship to how we've handled Syria and in specific, um, how we've handled Syria in relationship to Mr. Putin and Russia. Totally. Yeah, I'm totally misunderstand. The the idea that you can um, bomb uh, Gaddafi's uh, uh, country uh, and then afterwards it will work after he's killed. The idea that in Syria we're going to help this group of jihadis vice that group and then the idea that we can pull out of the region in 2011 and people like Putin aren't going to exploit that situation. Yeah, yeah so it, it's really quite shocking. America is, is the, the, the most uh, amazing nation the world has ever seen. It's the most powerful nation the world has ever seen, but the last 15 years it has acted in a completely astrategic way. And that's really, you know, the reason why I wrote my book. Well, we appreciate you taking time to share some of your insights today. And for listeners that would like to go deeper, and I think for the value of all of us, we need to go deeper because this presents a real serious threat to not only our freedoms and liberties here at home, but to allies in freedom-loving countries around the world, and of course, a direct threat to even the existence of Muslims as well. And I think that Sebastian is very accurate in pointing out, look, this is not singularly a war of Islam against Western ideals, Western mentality, Western governance, Western religion, because the vast majority of the physical casualties of Islam are not people in the West. They are other Muslims. And so rethinking this approach Shedding the code of political correctness, not so worried about what people are going to think, but rather how we can save lives. Is look, if you've ever taken time to read your history books, you know that not a lot of time was spent worrying about, well, gee, if we had if we announced that we're going to be declaring war on Japan after, say, December the 7th or Nazi Germany or the Axis powers, including Italy, what will Italians think of us? How can we possibly do this and run the risk of a them? Was it about protecting America's rights and freedoms or about being so overcome with concerns about whether or not somebody might momentarily be offended that we were not willing or capable of taking the action necessary to protect our very lifestyle, freedoms, and history? And I'm afraid if we do not wake up and begin to shed this coat of political correctness... The outcome of this war might be very different. It is a war, as suggested by Sebastian Gorka, that is winnable. The book called Defeating Jihad, The Winnable War, 
published by Regnery Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com at all. Regnery Press, of course, part of the very same fine company that owns this here radio station. And our thanks to best-selling author and the gentleman considered one of the uh, most outstanding Authorities on counterterrorism and, uh, and global terrorism, um, Sebastian Gorka. Thank you so much, Sebastian, for being with us today on Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.